0: And welcome to fact schmacks. It's the podcast good enough to get you a c minus. My name's Matt and I've got a story to tell you. My name's Kev, I have a story to interrupt. Hey Kevin. Hi Matt. How's how's your few weeks been? Well, it's
1: been lacking of fact schmacks. Well, <laughs> disappointingly, I'm we've had a bit disapp- of a you know, we've had a run. We've had a
0: hiatus. We've had a hiatus. Hopefully, the last one for a bit. Um, hope yes. Hopefully, we're not uh, not taking any breaks for a bit. I uh, I've been using my time productively. I doubt uh, that. My <laughs> my son has decided he really likes movies, and like oh. he he going to the movies. So I, we oh, went nice. to see a movie last week. It was The Bad Guys, which I'd never even heard of, but it's a series of books that he's very. Uh, He's loving, okay. And so, like, Top Gun's the big thing right now, right? Huge. I've never seen the original. What? Yeah, I never saw the original. I think I, I think we've talked about this on the podcast before. I'm
1: sure, and I haven't so remembered.
0: I figured, well, at least he shouldn't. You know, he shouldn't suffer because of this. So he I... should grow up to be a man. <laughs> so we've got we're going to see it tomorrow. We, we've even got those D box seats. Oh, nice. So we'll see how that goes. Um, and, Dude, I love uh, the theater. Love
1: going to the theater.
0: The movie we went to see, we were the only people there. It was great. It's, that, that's the best
1: time to see a movie. It's like the off times. Yeah. Fantastic.
0: So last night I watched Top Gun for the first time. Oh. And I have thoughts.
1: <laughs> yeah, you're 100% my goose.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. I hope that doesn't mean I... <clears throat> uh, Oh, it means you know, what you think it is. Or yeah. What you think it does. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You're going into the canopy,
1: buddy. I'm sorry.
0: Oh, that's a bummer. When this
1: crashes.
0: <laughs> that is possibly the most homoerotic movie I've ever seen in my entire life. Okay, okay. Hold <laughs> up. First of all,
1: you love and espouse wrestling constantly. Yes. There's no way Top Gun is more homoerotic than wrestling. It's not a movie. All
0: yeah, right, you got me there. I did get you there.
1: What about Brokeback Mountain?
0: Yeah, but it knows what it is.
1: Okay, fair enough. So what's your <laughs> what's your reasoning here?
0: Oh, uh, the, the volleyball scene. Volleyball scene. <laughs> yeah. The volleyball scene. The simmering tension between Iceman and Maverick through the whole movie. Yeah. Yeah. Did you know about the actually I mean it was I thought- loved it. Like I I <laughs> I loved it. I thought yeah. it was super great. I had a lot of fun watching it,
1: but holy shit, it is. Val Kilmer, uh, didn't like Tom Cruise. Oh, really? So that was like a legit thing. Yeah. Tom Cruise. Oh, was probably Tom Cruise in it up. I saw a really good thing with, uh, James Corden and Tom Cruise, uh, for promoting the, uh, new movie. where Tom yeah. Cruise takes, uh, James Corden flying. So Tom Cruise can actually fly and he flies a P 51 Mustang and then, uh, a jet, I can't remember what the jet was. but It was a two-seater, kind of like a trainer jet. Yeah. Uh, it was good. It was funny. I laughed. I Hippy. am a huge flying uh, aviation nerd. I was an air cadet as a kid. Like, I used to love going to air shows. And, and I still think, like, when I see a jet go by, like, it gives me a semi. I love it. Like, I'm like, well, wow, that thing is amazing.
0: Before that little uncomfortable bit of uh, of trivia, you dropped another bit of trivia. And I just have to wonder, do you have any more? Do you have any more of them facts and perhaps a schmacked? Well, I
1: do. So, uh, full disclosure, uh, we're going to have probably the worst, the lamest, weakest fact schmacks game ever. Because you know what? I was hungry for a win. When I, when I woke up from my nap this afternoon <laughs> Slash early evening I thought I need a win today But the old brain wasn't working So I did what I normally do I ate some ice cream And it got me thinking There's a lot of ice cream things We could talk about Okay So uh You know We got some ice cream Themed facts or schmacks You seem positively giddy Actually, I kind of am because it's, it's interesting, you know, Baskin Robbins claims 51 flavors, but I've found some flavors that probably aren't on their menu. Okay. (laughs) So fact or schmacked Matt, there's a toothpaste based ice cream flavor and it's not mint chocolate chip.
0: Does it, Okay, I don't expect you to actually know this, but is it, like, actual tooth? Like, will it clean your teeth? Fact or
1: schmacked, Matt. (laughs) There is a hot dog-flavored ice cream flavor. Hot dog ice cream. A hot dog, hot dog, hot diggity dog. Okay. You got any questions about that there, Mr. Inquisitor?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but... Well, it's more of a societal thing. Let's hear them. No, I mean I don't have any questions for you. I questioned the society that you know spawns hot dog flavored ice cream <laughs> that would allow such a thing to happen. Exactly, such an affront to God and the laws of nature.
1: Now, this uh, this next one here is not so much of a flavor, so much as what's in it. The flavor is called champagne, but the real kick from this ice cream is it's laced with Viagra. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you think? Which one gets you harder, the hot dog or the Viagra?
0: (laughs) 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 You seem like a hot dog man to me. Okay, I'm going to go with my classic strategy okay. of vote for the of of vote for the one that I least want to be true for whatever reason that that is okay now while I do think that hot dog flavored ice cream is an affront against man and nature itself okay I think someone's crazy enough to have done it. Toothpaste flavored ice cream, though. That isn't like candy cane ice cream. I don't think so. Who would want toothpaste flavored anything? Well, it's I think like that's soap
1: the- flavored gum. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Remember those? Thrills? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I actually kind of weirdly enjoyed them. Well, there you go. So there goes your theory. <laughs> no, Do you I, think it's a, I think I You want to make that your it's, final it's, answer? I'm going to make it the toothpaste your- favor- flavored. That's your final, final answer. answer.
1: God My final damn answer. it! <laughs>
0: ah, yeah, I made that up. The yeah. other two were
1: just—I wanted to believe them so much.
0: Could you imagine just champagne? Like, hey, yeah, laced with Viagra. Hey, honey, I'm gonna eat this ice cream and I'll be hard. And I wonder how I like how long it takes. I don't, I don't know.
1: Maybe maybe one of our listeners out there has tried it. Um, I, I often consider my erection dysfunctional, but not in the classic sense.
0: I'm considering this
1: conversation dysfunctional currently. So I always wondered, like, if you don't have ED, but you take a Viagra,
0: eh? like, do you just get, like, a rager or what? I don't know. Like, didn't, uh... Wasn't that a, a a jackass stunt? Wasn't there a jackass stunt involving Viagra? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Like, maybe that just, I'm just thinking of a Tosh to joke, Daniel Tosh joke. Yeah. Boston I don't wondered know. if anybody out there's tried
1: it. You know, let me know.
0: Very curious. Yeah, I bet you I bet
1: I you want spend a lot all, of time. I want to know all about your erection. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tell me everything every Every detail. It. Down every to the vein. detail, every <laughs> vein. <laughs> wow. So I hope you have a story for us, and this show does ramp up eventually. So this is uh, part two of our, our uh, trilogy? Yes. This is part two of a trilogy. The trilogy uh, is now called, roughly, at least a working title.
0: Eight-bit eight bit system. systems from, from a two-bit podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Like we had a very productive call
1: today. Absol- absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's the best brainstorming session we ever had.
0: So, today we're going to be talking primarily about Nintendo. Oh, I thought that would be number three. No. Hmm. Interesting. It isn't.
1: Dumbass. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. Jesus. I know. <laughs> Excuse me. Speaking of Nintendo, I'm just gonna tune out here. Play my play some Tetris on my my handy
0: Switch. Oh, funny! Fantastic uh, little device. Yeah. So Nintendo was founded as as we've actually discussed on this podcast before. It was founded in 1889, uh, when uh, the when Jack the Ripper was still active. Yeah. Uh, by Fusajiro Yamauchi. Yeah, I'm going to do my time. best with a lot of Japanese names during this and just just know that I'm doing my best. Um, He was selling so, Hanafuda cards. Hanafuda cards? Hanafuda
1: cards. Hanafuda.
0: Yes. What's a Hanafuda card? I'm glad you asked. I didn't. Uh, you, I'm so glad you asked, Kevin. I, I didn't. I've got an explanation ready to go because All you right. asked so nicely. Uh, All right. I think in the 1600s or so, Norwegians. Uh, Sorry, I thought kinda, your
1: explanation was going to be an explanation, not I thought. Yeah, some we we're going to go with some facts. Okay. No, period.
0: Norwegians introduced playing cards uh, to the Japanese, and Japanese people loved them, and. The, the people in charge there immediately banned them because they didn't want foreign influence. So to get around this, they made their own cards, and their cards had, you know, four seasons instead of four suits, and it, right. they had 12 months instead of 12 cards. Um, so they were functionally the same, same thing. Uh, and then those got banned too, but in 1899 they were becoming legal again. So uh, this Fusajiro Yamauchi uh, character uh, creates this company called Nintendo. Uh, I've seen varying translations of uh, what that means. One translation is leave luck to heaven, but apparently according to Wikipedia, my high-level sources, uh, that could also easily be translated as the the Temple of Free Hanafuda. So... Uh, Uh, who knows initially you don't he was what's that (laughs) I said you don't (laughs) Uh, initially he was very successful uh, and then business dried right up um, because really how many decks of cards does a house need one right maybe two then it's you're not running to the store and buying a new deck of cards uh, every week but you know who does Use cards, uh, go through decks of cards very frequently is casinos. casinos. You got it. So he made a deal with casinos, uh, and then he made a deal with the tobacco regulator in the country because I think they treated at the time, maybe they still do, tobacco like we treat uh, liquor in Ontario, where there's a you know kind of a state controlled board that operates shops to distribute it. Um, he got his cards sold in those shops too. And you know by doing that he started to build himself a pretty sizable supply chain and and manufacturing apparatus. Um, in 1929, so this is, you know, 40 years later, uh, his son-in-law, Sekiro Kaneda, Kanada, took over. Uh I say and was Kanada, a I say Kaneda. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Kaneda uh Took over, and he was he was a good steward of the same business strategy, um, but his health started to decline in the 1950s. He wasn't there, you know. He was only there for about 20 years or so, and so his grandson Hiroshi Yamauchi, took over. Uh, Hiroshi was a young man with with very ambitious ideas compared to his grandfather. You know, he wanted to be bigger than a playing card company, so. He did some things right away. He consolidated a lot of their manufacturing. Um, he fired a bunch of the old guard and brought in a bunch of young, savvy people. And he started trying a couple different business ventures to supplement this, uh, you know, this business that he had. Uh, one of the uh, the ventures that they tried was a pay by the hour love hotel. Hold up. <laughs> yeah,
1: so they were pimping?
0: But they, I mean, I, th- I don't think that they had their own,
1: you know. So it was like you could go there as a couple. It was a no-tell yeah. motel. Yeah, exactly. Okay, okay. Uh huh. Greasy.
0: Maybe. Um. So after that, you know, and other similar or other various ventures failed kind of looked around and realized that his biggest strength uh, was in this kind of robust distribution system uh, that he had um, now he just kind of had to f- find a a sort of budding industry where having a big old supply chain uh was was it a real advantage and he looked around and he settled on video games you know boys this is both what year this is in the early 70s now. Okay. So he took over in the 50s. By the early 70s, he's th- he's looking around and thinking, what else can we, you know, what should, what sh- what else can we be doing? He's tried some other things. He s- circles around to video games, and he, uh, you know, both coin-operated and home systems, which were starting to be a thing. From uh, Atari. From you know, from Atari, from like the Magnavox Odyssey, from. Uh, you know, there's, there was other systems that came before that. Like Atari is actually the second generation of consoles I think, as we right. went through. Um, so he shifted a lot of the resources of his company into research and development and, to you know, kind of get into this sort of video game entertainment production field. Uh, in 1979, um, they open uh, Nintendo of America. This is after they've had a couple successful arcade games in, in Japan. They open Nintendo of America because they want to get into the American market. And he taps his son-in-law, a guy named Minoru Arakawa, to lead it. Um, it was a bit tricky, apparently, to convince him to join. As, as Yamauchi's daughter, Yoko, who was Minoru's wife, uh, blamed Bidding Nintendo. <laughs> yeah, she blamed Nintendo for making her dad a cold man. Uh, but he did eventually manage to, um, to convince him to, to head this new Nintendo of America venture, which was primarily going to be focused on just distributing Nintendo arcade games inside of uh, the U.S. and Canada. Uh, so in 1970, or sorry, uh, so our Arakawa moves um, to New Jersey from Vancouver, where he had been living. He was, he had been living in North America, which is why he really wanted uh, uh, him in the first place. And they founded Nintendo of America again, like I said, primarily just to distribute these arcade machines. Now, one of the okay. first games that they imported at a mass scale was called Radar Scope. And it had initially tested very well, you know, put it in a couple, uh, uh, bars. People are loving it. They ordered like three or 4,000 of these machines and, uh, by the time the machines arrived on the East Coast, where they had initially set up, uh, Arakawa went back into the bars where the, the machines had been set up or the arcades and noticed that nobody was playing them. And after asking around, it turned out that people thought it was fun at first, but and it wore off pretty quickly. Just like Fat Max. Yeah. <laughs> so now they've got thousands of units that no arcade owners want; that they're not able to sell. They need somebody to design a new game, basically using the same inputs, the same screen, the same you know architecture. You basically they need to be able to just swap out the motherboard and change the art. So, they in Japan, they tap this young man named Shigeru Miyamoto, and they put him in charge of. Of doing that. And he. Goes away and you know with his team. Of I think four people. Programs this game and. You know lickety split. I can, I actually could not fig- find. How, exactly how long the turnaround time was. But this all happened within a year anyways. Okay. Um, and they sent. Emergency conversion kits. Back to Nintendo of America. And Nintendo of America doesn't really know. What to expect. And they take one of these conversion kits and they swap out the motherboards and they watch as this title scrolls up the screen. Donkey Kong, Uh,
1: I was just going to guess that I was going to say it's Donkey (laughs) Kong.
0: It was Donkey Kong. And they thought, holy shit, this thing's going to be a disaster. Who's going to want to play this Donkey Kong thing? But, you know, Nintendo of Japan had said, nope, this thing's going to be a hit. Uh, Eric Hall was the good company man. He's like, nope, this thing's going to be a hit. We're going to go. We're going to go ahead. And actually, while they were doing that, they ended up having to rename some of the characters, or they, were they, I don't know if they had to, but they, they wound up doing that. They named the girl Pauline. Uh, they kept the name Donkey Kong for Donkey. What were the Kong. original names? Uh, I didn't look that up. Oh, well, I can well, tell that you one. have made a way name. better segment. Would have. Uh, <laughs> but here we are. <laughs> They here renamed we are, here them you are. these
1: names. Well, that's just the names we know.
0: <laughs> well, I can tell you that one, um, the hero was originally called Jumpman, but uh, they uh, Nintendo of America renamed him to Mario because he looked like, or Mario, uh, because he looked like Nintendo of America's landlord Mario Segal. So, okay. fun, fun little bit of trivia for you there. Uh, the machine was absolutely an enormous hit. With an estimated $280 million uh, in revenue for Nintendo, uh, and a lot of people starting to notice Nintendo as like a, you know, kind of big up and coming company. Uh, And that included Universal Pictures. Universal Pictures actually got wind of Donkey Kong when Coleco licensed Donkey Kong for the ColecoVision. And when they did that, all of a sudden it showed up on a trademark search while while Universal was doing some stuff. And they approached Coleco and told them, Hey, you're you're infringing on our rights for King Kong. So you'd better pay us some royalties or or you're gonna be faced with a lawsuit from, you know, big Universal Pictures. Uh, and Coleco didn't want to do that, so they gave in. They agreed to pay royalties. Then Universal went to Tiger Electronics because they were licensing a a handheld version of Donkey Kong. Tiger wasn't so willing to budge. Now, Nintendo's lawyer, Howard Lincoln, was originally inclined to throw some money at him to make him go away. He thought he could settle it for, I think I saw between $1 and $7 million somewhere in there. But he did some investigating and some thinking about it, and he decided they'd be better off fighting them. He thought that, this was actually a shakedown and he wasn't convinced that Universal actually owned uh, the copyright for King Kong. So Lincoln met with uh, Universal president, uh, Lincoln and Eric I think, the president and the, the lawyer, met with the president of Universal Pictures, which was Sid Sheinberg, uh, who was a very successful attorney in his own right, to let them know that they wouldn't be paying the, uh, that they wouldn't be paying the and any royalties to them that they didn't believe that they own the trademark. And, uh, you know, if they did, absolutely. We'd be paying you, but we don't think you own it. So we won't. And, uh, what a, goodbye. what a, what a move by universal. Like I should find
1: like some like well-off company and just be like, Hey, uh, you're infringing on my copyright and you can buy me off for a really reasonable rate of one to $7 million. Yeah. Well, Which I mean, universal,
0: money... universal had made King Kong movies. Sure. So, um, but uh, yeah, so (laughs) Scheinberg apparently was so angry, he told them, you'd better start saving money to pay your attorney's fees. I view litigation as a profit center, which apparently was a quote that came back to bite him in the ass when it came down to uh, the actual litigation. But uh, Lincoln hired a lawyer named John Kirby, uh, who is a famous lawyer in his own right. He had won big cases, I think, working for like Pepsi and... Uh, and I think, actually, ironically, he'd worked f- for Universal, too, at some point. Um, <clears throat> to save you all the legal drama, it turns out that Universal actually did know damn well that they didn't own the rights to King Kong. Uh, in 1975, they had litigated to prove that King Kong was it <laughs> public domain. So it was oh, kind really? of... Yeah, it was kind of open and shut and because they had done oh, that's that same man, that's so greasy. It it was a greasy move. Um because they had done that, uh Nintendo was able to countersue for damages because they had sent all the cease and desist um uh, you know stuff. They had contacted vendors and you know, they had they had been kind of greasy. Um uh, they had uh they, they were awarded one point eight million dollars from Universal. Uh nice. and yeah. And then a bunch of the, the a bunch of the licensees that were licensing Donkey Kong for various, you know, consoles or whatever, they, who had caved and paid Universal royalties, they turned around and sued Universal to back to get the royalties back. Most of them settled. Uh, so, you know, that happened.
1: Well, that looks um, good on them. Yeah. Right. In
0: 1983, the Nintendo Family Computer launched in Japan. Uh, also known as the Famicom, that is the the Nintendo Entertainment System, but the Japanese version. Um, okay. There was like some the drama OG with... The OG Nintendo console. It's the OG Nintendo console. There was some drama with a recall, but uh, it proved to be incredibly successful. So Yamauchi, who's the president of Nintendo of Japan, wants Nintendo of America to launch this bad boy in North America, but like at the same time, the video game crash is happening in North America, so retailers are piecing the fuck out. They're saying, "We're you know we're not going to get burned twice, uh, returning inventory all the time, and you know stocking stuff that never sells." So it's funny how that still is kind of a thing. Sure, like, how many yeah, console? I, on
1: like I I don't like day one consoles. Yeah, because you I, know they're pr- they're prone
0: to breakdowns. Yeah, yeah, probably. Um, but, uh, yeah, so he knew that it was not a good time to try and launch a console in North America. So he held out and he held out, but getting a lot of pressure because, you know, I'm sure they're in Japan, they're looking at this thing selling like gangbusters and being like, this is free money. Like what, what are we doing? Why are we leaving this on the table? So by 1984, he could, could hold out no longer. Um, they at least had to kind of gauge the market and see what it was going to be like Uh, they didn't want to make it look like a video game console though they'd have to convince retailers to to stock it like I said retailers were shying away from anything that even looked like a console so the original design that they settled on in 1984 was the advanced video system it had a keyboard a tape drive two wireless controllers a light gun and a three octave musical keyboard what that would Uh, have been way cooler (laughs) kind of they tested this design out, like I said, 1984, and people uh, did not react very positively to it. A lot of groans, a lot of eye rolls, a lot of you know, yeah, yeah, a lot of been there, been there, done that, not doing it again. But there was one guy, this guy named Sam Borovsky, who saw the potential. He introduced himself to Arakawa and told him he's the guy that's going to help him get this thing off the ground in in North America. He knew. How to do it he knew he had a history with working with Atari he had seen the mistakes that they had made he understood how to get around them and he was going to educate Arakawa in the North American market and, and you know what had happened and what you need to do so spends months kind of coaching him through this um, and they came up plans uh, with plans to kind of prevent some of the the things that had had happened. And this is still some stuff that Nintendo does today. Like, for example, uh, anyone who tries to get Nintendo merchandise, uh, they consistently under ship. Uh, they they never ship a full allotment of stock. Now, so
1: they were the OG supply crisis, <laughs> um, artificial inflation company.
0: I mean, yeah, on one hand, it creates it does create a little bit of demand. On the other hand, it makes sure that retailers are never you know, stuck want with inventory, they're not moving. And they're in the I, opposite I, position. They want it from you. You know what? Hold on. I
1: have a thought. I feel like that's why we should take more breaks with Fact max, <laughs> Create artificial demand, because that's probably the only way we'll get it.
0: <laughs> they also, uh, you know, realize that one of the big problems with the Atari debacle was, was all the third-party garbage that was out there and how quickly it, it had flooded the market. So they came up with this uh, licensing chip, or this locking licensing system with a lockout chip to make sure that only people that they approve, only games that they approve of, can come out on the system. Now you might remember back from the Atari episode, it has been a while uh, for us. Chuck, the Chuck Wagon one and...
1: Yeah. Like all those yeah, random right.
0: games. All those random games. But but Activision had, or Atari had sued Activision to say, hey, you can't put out games on our system. And Activision had lost. Nintendo was able to get Atari around it. Atari lost. Atari lost, sorry. Yeah. Nintendo was able to get around that uh, because they just physically locked stuff out and cooperated the the locking mechanism, okay. which Atari hadn't done. That just, things just ran on disk, right? Yeah. Or a, a cartridge, and you could just manufacture a cartridge. So... Um, they also redesigned the machine to look like a VCR, which, you know, kind of right idea trying to disassociate themselves with video game consoles at the time. Uh, they were trying to make it look like something less like a computer because that's maybe going too far in one direction, but more like some, like, a, like something that belongs under a TV. That's sure. not a video game system. So that's why it's the most boring gray box in the, in the world versus if you look at the, the Japanese one, it's this bright red you know, colorful, vibrant yeah. thing. So, you know, a grueling year turnaround time to get this thing ready to get um, retailers in New York to actually carry this thing, but they they managed to pull it off. They got it into stores. Uh, they launched with classic games like 10-Yard Fight and Wrecking Crew and Clue Clue Land, uh, but also this little game called Super Mario Brothers. Uh, the, uh, and the test set them up to launch in other markets. And really the rest is, is history in terms of the Nintendo entertainment system. I mean, it was the only system that anybody really cared about in that generation. They sold, I think it was only like 30 million NESs, but it was way more than any generation had sold before. Well, I remember like, I didn't have an NES as a kid, Mm -hmm.
1: um, but My neighbors did and we would always go like play it, you know, and and it was such a novelty. And and Mario Duck Hunt, like Duck Hunt. I mean, that was like a pretty uh, interesting game because he had the whole like, you know, the light uh,
0: uh, gun or whatever. Yeah. Nintendo had been doing light gun stuff for a long time. That was like their jam in in Japan. They Released a ton of light gun consoles
1: in like the 70s. Yeah, and it's so iconic. Like I can still hear the
0: the duck sound and the like the... <laughs> <laughs> Now you might ask, what else was going on in the uh, in in that generation? You know, surely it wasn't just Nintendo, though. It was anybody else fighting for air?
1: Sega.
0: Well, so, yeah. So Sega had launched their Master System. And it was enough of a success to continue living, although even though it didn't have a lot of, you know, games that weren't Sega games. Um, Atari, on the other hand, had been going through some changes, as you remember, where we left off. Atari had been like split Teacock. into two yeah, to two different companies. Uh, they were, you know, after they'd been bought out by Warner, they had the... the
1: Home coin consumer up.
0: division yeah. that was releasing the the consoles, and then they had the coin op division, which was like the hardware division. The, the 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 home consumer division was sold to a guy named Jack Trammell. He's the guy who released you know all the subsequent Atari systems after the twenty six hundred. Um, he's the, you know up to in, including the Jaguar, uh, and then that business kind of went defunct. The other half wound up being sold to Namco and then was purchased by the man who Namco Japan had sent to run the company in America, this guy named uh, Hideyuki Nakajima. And he, had decide, he, he decided he wanted to get into the consumer games market, but he had a problem because under the agreement with Jack Tramiel's Atari from, from way back when they were still part of Warner, um, Nakajima's Atari wasn't allowed to release home, home console games. They could only release arcade games. So it was a really weird arrangement that they had. But no biggie. Just make a new sub- subsidiary and sell games under that name. So they formed Tengen and released games uh, as as Tengen. So this is, you know, the Atari that has the rights to, you know, classic Atari games, Pac Man, uh, you know, all the, the classic arcade games that they right. made, Gauntlet, uh, all sorts of stuff. Now, in order to be a Nintendo licensee back in that day, in order to release games for the console, you had to um, submit the game to Nintendo and allow them to make cha- any change they wanted to remove blood or religious symbols. Uh, and then you had to buy the cartridges from Nintendo. They cost anywhere from $9 to $14 per cartridge, a minimum $10,000 order. Uh, and wow. they only al- allowed you to make five games per year. And uh, any games you made had to be exclusive to the Nintendo system for two years. So that's a pretty, like, hugely restrictive. It puts all of the risk onto the game developers. Nintendo yeah. getting paid either way, right? Sure. It's a gr- great business arrangement for them. Um. And uh, you couldn't just release a game without their approval because they had a lockout chip and program to prevent anyone from, you know, just be you couldn't just reverse engineer the chip that's on the cartridge and you couldn't just reverse engineer the chip that was uh, in the console. There was a program that was running called 10 Ness that was essentially kind of a bespoke algorithm that they were using um, that they had copyrighted. uh so you, you could technically walk into a copyright office and look at this stuff, but you couldn't take a copy of it uh, and you couldn't uh, couldn't take it, you know, take it home with you. The copyright office is kind of fun like that. And nevertheless, <laughs> they they agreed to the terms and, and they released three games as an official licensee. Now, Nakamura had been kind of butthurt because he had he had gone to Nintendo and he had said, hey, we're Atari like we're a big name. Surely you can cut us some sort of deal, like maybe we can manufacture our own cartridges because we're experienced in that, you know, or maybe uh, you can give us a break on the cost of them because, you know, Atari's worth so much and Nintendo had been basically, no, nope, you're going to get treated like anybody else.
1: Sure. No special treatment for you.
0: Exactly. So they released RBI Baseball Gauntlet and Pac-Man. Uh, RBI Baseball in particular was a very popular uh, NES game. But behind the scenes, Atari scientists were working to reverse engineer the 10s lockout, but they couldn't do it without access to the actual program. So what to do? What to do? Well, like I'd said, the copyright the program was copyrighted. You couldn't take that information out of the copyright office to work on it in any substantial way, but you could theoretically take that information out if it was subject to litigation. So they forged documents saying that they were in litigation re- revolving around these patents, got access to it illegally, what? and then uh, they were able to reverse engineer this lockout wow. and started, yeah. So they, they had reverse engineered it. They, they made their own program called Rabbit that could run off unauthorized games. And just as as this is happening... There was a chip shortage that hit in the late '80s. Oh, sounds that familiar, happened, doesn't then it? too. <laughs> yeah, and it the did prices happen to get them. Stupid? So, Nintendo, who makes all the the cartridges for everybody, has to tell everybody, "Well, you're not getting as many games as you'd ordered because it's harder to get the you know the chips for it." Atari goes to them and says, hey, what if we get find our own chips? Can, you know, we just give them to you and you can make our game so we can at least meet our quota here. And Nintendo said, well, pay the difference. And as long as they pass our, you know, our rigorous standards. So they found a a source of them in, in the U.S. somewhere and they sent off some samples. And Nintendo just said, nah, not up to our standards, denied them, which was maybe a dick move. I mean, I don't know the whole story there. But uh, in December of '88, Atari and slash TenGen had enough. They sued Nintendo for hundred million dollars for antitrust violations, and at the same time, uh, they sent out their own unauthorized games to retailers. And you you know you'll you'll know a TenGen game if you've ever seen one because they're a black cartridge and they've got um, they're kind of more rounded in a weird way. Um, okay, I yeah, didn't know so that was a thing. That was a thing. They round up releasing like a dozen unauthorized games. Uh, Nintendo starts, you know, threatening retailers saying, hey, if you start carrying any of these guys games, you know, we're going to pull our our inventory for you. Maybe your shipments will get disrupted. Maybe they won't wind up anywhere. And retailers were very afraid of Nintendo because they know at the time. So Atari filed an injunction telling saying Nintendo shouldn't be able to do that. Uh, a judge said, sure, yeah, totally. You guys should not be able to interfere with each other's customers. For some reason, Atari was like, oh, no, 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 no. We should totally be able to interfere with their customers. And so they contested that um, injunction. And then the judge just threw the whole thing out. So Nintendo kept just threatening retailers to pull their products. But Dude, it did. Some,
1: sorry, some of these 10 Gen games are fantastic. Paperboy? Yeah, because they're all Atari games. Yeah. Paperboy, yeah. Tetris? Yeah. Like, that's crazy. I didn't realize that those were... The uh, first uh, version like,
0: of Tetris. I didn't realize those were hot. Mm-hmm. Those were, yes, unauthorized. Uh, now, eventually, the, uh, the all the lawsuits came to a head, and TenGen lost, because while well, they'd they'd stolen the plans, and Nintendo was able to prove that they had stolen uh, their specific um, design there had been a revision that they had made after they'd filed the copyright, but, you know, that the, the unnecessary code was still in the 10-gen games. There was also, like, apparently other functions uh, that weren't just specific to running the game that the 10-gen chips were doing. So it were was... They, um,
1: were they the original uh collecting your data and spying on you cartridges?
0: No, no. How? No. You need <laughs> an internet connection for something like that. I know, I'm kidding. <laughs> um Actually... Uh, so yeah, eventually, yeah, they, 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 they fought, you know, they fought the good fight, really, they, as consumers, we probably hope, should have hoped that they won, but, uh, but they didn't, they did get Nintendo to drop its exclusivity policy, so games would come out on other consoles, you know, sooner, if not simultaneously, so that was a good thing heading into the, uh, 16-bit area era. It also, even though they lost, it, their, their case did enshrine the right to reverse engineer things. So basically, what the case said was, to the extent that you actually reverse engineered anything from scratch, great, you totally should be able to do that. Yeah, but you can't steal things from the copyright office to yeah yeah <laughs> to get to get the the rest of the way there. Yeah, that's a little so. Rough. Yeah, Atari had to pull all their their Nintendo games off of shelves, so and you know, so they're huge in a more real way they lost. Now. What's that? They're probably big collector items. Uh to a certain extent, I think to the right person. I guess to the right person, anything's a collector's item. They did go on to make a bunch of games for Sega's hot new console that had just come out right around the same time, which was the Genesis. But the 16-bit wars are a story for another day.
1: <laughs> that's another trilogy.
0: <laughs> that's another, yeah. So that's that's as far as we're going to push the football here. Okay. So just three little kind of important moments in the, the 8-bit era, the 8-bit race. By a 2-bit podcast. By a 2-bit podcast. The 8-bit wars, I guess. It wasn't much yeah. of a war. It was more of a stomping. Yeah. It's uh
1: it's funny like I I think back fondly on those days, you know, and you remember you know always having to pull the cartridge out, and blow on it and, and uh like it, I I can almost just feel the controller, you know, like there's that tactile
0: kind of memory yeah, of it, the smell I've, of it even. I've got the mini, so it does have a pretty convincing replication of the controller, which is Not as comfortable to hold as you remember. No, no. No.
1: Well, I also had tiny hands back then.
0: Yeah, so maybe it was better with small hands. With my big adult mitts, it's no good at all.
1: No, No. jabs you with all those corners. Right? Yes. Yeah. Way too pointy. Far too pointy. Far too pointy. Hey, you know, I'm kind of impressed because uh, we've made it through pretty much the whole episode and you never abandoned me once today. That is true. Yeah, that's rare.
0: That is rare. It's, be,
1: it's, be, it's been becoming a bit, and uh, <laughs> you know, I'm impressed. Thank you. You didn't
0: interrupt me very much. So you didn't give me too many times to grab a drink. Well,
1: <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I was kind of i was i was interested in the story for once, so I had to sit back <laughs> and just take it all in. Yeah, so as I discussed before, my brain is not firing on all cylinders today. Or any day A really. Slow on the uptake. Yeah, but usually there's at least, you know, 3 out of 8 going. Today it's like one just lagging. <coughs> oh my god, I just choked. <laughs> uh, that's terrible. You choked on your out. words. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, God damn this
0: day Well it's pretty fascinating Matthew Why Uh, thank you Kevin I'm impressed Do you have a closing fact to bring us home Mm
1: -hmm. I do From my Newly rediscovered You see that right there Reader's Digest
0: Book of Facts I'm so glad you read that Because I was about to break the shit out of you For saying see that right there on a podcast
1: Yeah Uh, so I've been having a little bit of fun with this book before we started opening it up, finding some things. I got a little religious fact and it, it answered a question that I always had. Okay. The sign of the fish. You are familiar with the Jesus fish? Yes. Do you know what the Jesus fish is all about?
0: Uh, it's from when Jesus turned a fish. Into a frog that's with close a little but mouse, not right at all in his hands.
1: I think you're thinking of like and Cinderella
0: the, or something. The mouse was holding a let's little bug, go. <laughs> and the bug huh? had a little. The bug had a little, uh, um, you know, just like a little fungus on it, and the fungus just embedded in it. I just. Just, just nothing. It had nothing. There was no point to any of this.
1: Sorry. Continue. Okay, I was just, I <laughs> just wanted to let that happen. <laughs> I just wanted to stay out of the way of that. <laughs> All right. According to the Reader's Digest Book of Facts, yes. Sign of the fish. Today's born-again Christians often display a sketch of a fish to show their faith. This is not because the Bible calls the apostles fishers of men. It is because the letters of the Greek word for fish, oh, here's where it's going to get tricky. Ichthus? <laughs> I should have read this better. Oh, ich- boy. Ichthus. I-C-H-T-H-U-S. Sure, it was like ichthyosaur. or yeah. Uh, stand for the Greek phrase Lessus Christos Theo Ulos Solter, which is Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. The symbols appear in Christian art from the second century AD as a symbol of Christ and the newly baptized. So I can only imagine some ancient ass Roman wagons with like a Jesus fish on the tail tailgate. <laughs>
0: Like the bumper, you know. Yeah, yeah. I
1: always wondered where that came from. I'm like, what's the deal with the fish? I don't get it.
0: I'm so glad after I chose to do something that sent around Japan and a bunch of names that I couldn't fucking pronounce. That you came in with a fact that you couldn't fucking pronounce at the end. Yeah, you know, I just
1: will. I, I will say that you're better t- at the at the Japanese names than you were at the Russian ones. Oh, that was from from Dvietlov Pass from that Russia was tough. With Yetis. <laughs> Yeah, that was really tough. Yeah, well, thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, We hope that we are going to be coming back with some more consistent releases. And, uh, you know, if you enjoyed the show, be sure to find us somewhere, like us, leave us a review, subscribe, do all the things. And uh, thanks for joining us. Okay, bye. Bye, Bye-bye. Thank
0: you for listening to Facts Schmacks.
1: We hope you enjoyed our show. If you want to hear more, be sure to check us out on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash facts schmacks.
0: Or you can check us out on Facebook or on YouTube or on Twitter.com at Fact Schmacked Pod. We also have a website,
1: factschmacks.xyz, because we know you haven't had enough yet. Sure.